Hello and welcome to this week's 1201 podcast. My name is Callum Watt and I am not here as ever with Callum Roper. Hello there everyone. And also Bradley Orsop. Hello there. And this week we will be discussing the uh, big news that's come out just today. Uh, Jenny Formby, the uh, General Secretary of the Labour Party, the first permanent uh, General Secretary, female uh, General Secretary of the Labour Party. I think there were female General Secretaries in the past, but they were in an acting capacity. She was, of course, a political officer for Unite, very closely tied to unite Lisa Len McCluskey uh, and also, of course, Jeremy Corbyn, but now uh, she is gone. But we will return to that uh, later. First, uh, we're going to try something a little bit different uh, this week. We've had a couple of PMQs, Prime Minister's Questions, by the new leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, and the debate around his performance has been somewhat mixed. Mostly the word that's been ascribed to his performance was the word forensic, which was somewhat linked to his personal style as a, as a barrister. Um, he often asks uh, very questioning styles. He takes it very sincerely. Um, we just want to do a little bit of a comparison to see how he stacks up against other opposition leaders in the past. Um, we're going to try to use some audio clips, which we've never done before on this 1201 podcast. Let's just have a listen to uh, his performance from last week, which is the 29th of April 2020. I'm not going to play the whole thing, just a small, short clip. Keir Starmer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Can I be clear, I wasn't criticising the experts, I was pointing out the difference between what had been hoped for uh, and where we'd got to. I do um, welcome the clearer breakdown of figures, which I think we're going to get from this afternoon um, onwards. I also welcome the fact that it appears, and I hope this is right, that the number of hospital admissions are going down uh, and the number of deaths from coronavirus in hospitals are going down. We've all been looking at those graphs and I hope uh, that that is continuing in in the right direction. But from yesterday's data, it appears that that just isn't the case in care homes. They show that deaths in care homes appear to have been rising even while hospital deaths have been falling. And that's on the back, as the First Secretary knows, of concern for some weeks from the front line about testing in care homes and the speed of testing, about concerns about protective equipment and arguments that it's been too slow. We've all heard from the front line in the care sector expressions of real anxiety about the situation that they find themselves in. So can the First Secretary explain why he thinks that coronavirus continues to spread so fast in the care sector? And returning briefly to something from last week, but I think the First Secretary has already touched on it, could he give us the up-to-date figures for the number of those that have died uh, on the front line in the health care staff and the number of social care workers? I raised it last week. I think he's given a figure, but just to confirm that. First Secretary. So, in the first instance, I mean, that actually sounds quite good, um, the first part of that. But then, of course, he seems to struggle later on, and he he's almost seems to be unsure about what he's saying. Um, the next thing I want to play is a, a, a comparison with Jeremy Corbyn, his predecessor, uh, who also had a very questioning style uh, and this this is his first PMQs 
Thank you, Mr Speaker. I want to thank all those that took part in an enormous democratic exercise in this country, which in concluded with me being elected as Leader of the Labour Party and Leader of the Opposition. I think we can be very proud of the numbers of people who engaged and took part in all those debates. I've taken part in many events around the country and had conversations with many people about what they thought about this place our Parliament, our democracy and our conduct within this place. And many told me that they thought Prime Minister's question time was too theatrical, that Parliament was out of touch and too theatrical, and they wanted things done differently, but above all they wanted their voice heard in Parliament. So I thought my first Prime Minister's question time, I do it in a slightly different way, and I'm sure the Prime Minister is going to absolutely welcome this, as he welcomed this idea in 2005, but something seems to have happened to his memory during that period. Um, and so I sent out an email to thousands of people and asked them what questions they would like to put to the Prime Minister, and I received 40,000 replies. Now, there isn't time to ask 40,000 questions today, and uh, our rules limit us to six. And so I would like to start with the first one, which is about housing. Two and a half thousand people emailed me about the housing crisis in this country. And I asked one from a woman called Marie, who says, what does the government intend to do about a chronic lack of affordable housing and the extortionate rents charged by some private sector landlords in this country, Prime Minister. And so that's that was so that was the um, the revolutionary change, if you like. Um, what did you how do you, how do you think the two compare so far, Bradley? I mean, I think they're they're very different, aren't they? In some ways, so I think. Uh, Starmer's was very odd, wasn't it? It, it? You're right, it sort of started off okay. He, he was sort of a, being gracious enough to admit a point that, that the government seems to be getting a, a grip on hospital deaths, um, but, but quite rightly raised the issue of care home deaths, which which is probably far higher than, than any of us realise at the moment. Um, but, then, but then he sort of almost said, oh, well, you've already sort of answered the question, but I thought I'd just ask again to double check, which sort of made the, what was actually quite a good point sort of a bit muted in the views at the end um but but regardless it was a very sort of um it it was a bit like conversations i'd had i've had at a debating society meeting before you know it it was very sort of gentlemanly and measured whereas what corbyn was doing i think revolutionary was was quite right actually i think pmqs is is something very distant to a lot of people I, i don't think elections are won at pmqs um, I, I doubt what relevance they really have for a lot of people. What Corbyn was trying to do there w- w- was make it about ordinary people, make it something where actually the Prime Minister was held to account by the people. Um, so I think, I think the, the underlying philosophy and approach to both were, were quite different, even if the, the performance seemed quite similar. Corbyn was making it more about the people and trying to, trying to open up the PM to accountability. Where Starmer's was Starmer's sort of just almost reminded me of a, of a bit like a debating style, you know, like a debating society meeting. Mm, mm. But he's also uh, um, my concern. I mean, I I took some advice because I'm 
thinking of writing an article about this. Um, I took some advice from a friend of mine uh, who's well on his way to becoming a barrister. I think he's actually won some awards. Um, we'll, we'll have to get him on the show sometime, and Mark has me. Um, and uh, I asked him, well, what do you think is influencing Kia Starmer's presentation in this respect? Because um, obviously, as we know, he's a barrister. Do you think he's treating it um, as like a, a as a court case? But the specific question I asked him was: at PMQs, they obviously share the uh, questions in advance, and there's no reasonable question, therefore, of actually, you know, catching the government with the trousers down because they're going to have time to prepare. And I wondered if that was the case in court cases as well. And the reply to that was that. Well, yes, absolutely, if not more so. Um, Barristers will usually share their skeleton arguments well in advance of the case with the opposition, to such an extent, in fact, that, and this is part of the intention, um, actual hearings, actual full court cases, as we imagine them, you know, in TV dramas and things like that, are sometimes not even necessary uh, because the written evidence is sufficient for a judgment. But the key point... Um, is that the lawyers are there to advise the judge to make a reasonable decision. So in that context, Keir Starmer, as a a human rights lawyer, a very good human rights lawyer by by all accounts, um, is used to being in a situation where you're trying to reach basically what you might call a dialectic, a truth. But of course, in this scenario... You don't have an impartial judge sitting sitting in between you. The judge, if you like, is the public, and you are you are actually trying to convince them um, of 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 what you're saying. You're not just trying to hold the government to account either. You're trying to make yourself a, a credible alternative. And actually, if you think that I'm coming at that from a partisan perspective, the the third clip I want to play, if I may, is actually from a very different leader of the opposition. Um, and I just want to see how he compares to both of both Corbyn and Keir and maybe get your thoughts on it, Callum, as well. I asked him two questions. I said, as he himself said a few weeks ago, does he expect them to stand on the same manifesto? I answer it, yes. I then asked him, will he at least seek to persuade people to stand on the same manifesto? I answer yes. He is so weak and powerless he can't even say. Well, is it not? He cannot, he cannot, he cannot even get to that. Oh, yes. Is it not extraordinary? Order, order. Order house must come to order. Extraordinary. Isn't it extraordinary? that the Prime Minister of our country can't even urge his party to support his own position. Weak, weak, weak. Weak. And I tell him, that is the reason. His weakness and his failure of leadership are the reason his government 
is the incompetent mess it is. Just a bit of uh, sort of Blair nostalgia for you. Uh, wasn't that wasn't that rousing, Callum? Well, you can see the the appeal. Um, he certainly he plays into that that style of of approaching PMQs that it's very adversarial. Um, and 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 the one thing I've always noticed about Blair, we've seen it in in a lot of his, in the way he approaches speeches and debates, is that he likes the power of three, but that three being the same word. Um, we had education, 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 but we also had week, week, week. In this case, um, I I find it quite interesting actually. I mean, part of me says that. I, I would like to see a Starmer going in like that into the government's current approach to COVID-19. So basically, it's a case of I think that the leader of the opposition is, as Callum said, appealing to the public, the general public. So by, you know, going in, calling the government weak, I don't think it's very constructive and I don't agree with it. But certainly it has that appeal and it does have that element to it that's that's electorally you know, beneficial. Certainly now, if we had a leader of the opposition approaching the government like that, it would grab some headlines. I think I think it would grab headlines. I, the question is, I, I don't know if it would backfire on Starmer. I, I think he's calculated that there's perhaps not a public appetite for it at the moment. Um, and, and as frustrating as that is, I think it's frustrating that, that there isn't a, a stronger mood to hold public to account, the, the government to account. But I think he might be right, actually, to some extent. Um, I think I think there's definitely a desire to 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 have you know this this idea the government has been putting out that I think is quite nefarious that that uh, people don't want the press to be holding the government to account. I don't think that's true. I think that's nonsense. I think that's a sort of almost Trumpetic sort of, of bullying and intimidating of the media. I think that's dangerous. But I I think there's maybe something in the argument that the public doesn't necessarily want to see a, an opposition sort of tearing into the government over this. I think. At that level, in terms of politicians, I think they they would rather see a sort of more constructive, sort of a cooperative approach. So I don't know if if Starmer went in in the way that Blair did in that clip. I don't know if it would work for him actually. As frustrating as that is, because I think there's plenty of reason to government to task. And to be honest, I would like to see a bit of bloody fury over what the government's done. Yeah, yeah, that's that's my frustration. That is my frustration. It, it costs lives, but I, I I don't know if. I don't know if Starmer could get away with, with going in in the way that Blair did in that clip at the moment. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It's very much a case of that was a very weak government he was up against there in in terms of Blair. This is a completely different different beast we're up against here. It's it's you know in the it's been in the ascendancy. It's just won a general election by a, by a massive majority, and it's 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 currently dealing with a national crisis and in times of national crises we see that people prefer to come together than to criticize the government which is frustrating when there's so many lives at risk and so many lives that have already been lost i mean i I personally agree more with bradley's last point i just it will serve us more better in the long run if there's a bit of i just want to see some passion from him i find it very um it's very depressing to see uh, to see the leader of the opposition just almost rolling over, and people will see that. I feel um, I think people will see that as weak. I mean, I could be wrong. 
Um, I could be entirely wrong. Maybe, maybe people do uh, want someone calm and boring. And you know, cause as I say, I've I, I've never thought of uh, Kiyostama as a particularly great orator, but maybe he's he's played it right on on this level. Some people have. I just have one more clip to play, if I may. A lot of people have said that you know, it's it's good for him to be boring, right? Because the greatest prime minister we ever had was Clement Attlee, and and he was quite boring, wasn't he? You know, he was he was just a dull bureaucrat or a, a, a modest man with much to be modest about, as Churchill put it. But I that the trouble with that is that it's not actually true. It's not true. Um, Clement Attlee was actually a very uh, good speaker, and even if he he brought, you know he was no an R and Bevan, but he actually did put his points across very well. So, if I may, I just want to play a clip of him speaking, and that will be the final comparison, and we'll we'll uh, we'll move on to the uh, this week's news. There has seldom been a more impotent claim than that put forward by the present government to call itself national. It is reminiscent of the late Ramsay MacDonald, of Lord Baldwin and Mr. Neville Chamberlain. But the circumstances of the time make the claims still more outrageous. After five years in which the Labour Party has borne its full share in the burden of government during the five most momentous years of our history, the Conservative Party, with a few functionaries, and a fringe of sycophantic liberals arrogates to itself the title of national, to which it has no right. You have only to run through the list of conservative members in the House of Commons and of their candidates standing for the safer seats to see that they belong to two classes only, those who are born rich and those who have achieved riches. You would look in vain for anyone from the wage-earning classes. The nearest approach to it will be someone who in his remote youth worked for a weekly wage. In the Labour Party, on the contrary, you will find a remarkable range of experience. There are plenty of men and women educated in the school of life, but there are plenty who have studied at the universities many of them with high distinction. All the professions are well represented, doctors, clergy, and lawyers. There are employers as well as workers, farmers, practical working farmers, as well as farm workers. There are writers and printers, working engineers, and managing directors of engineering works, soldiers, sailors, airmen and men from the merchant navy, scientists and artists, teachers and professors and women of varied experience. The Labour Party is in fact a good cross-section of the nation. There are foreigners who do not appreciate this fact and there are people at home who cannot understand it. They say, I cannot understand why well-to-do people should support socialism. I can understand, of course, a working man doing so. The answer is that the socialist appeal 
is essentially a moral one. The economic principles for which labor stands are not put forward as aims in themselves, but as necessary of application in order that Britain, in its economic and social organization, may satisfy the deep desire of men and women of goodwill in all classes for social justice and economic democracy. It is the glory of our movement that men and women in every rank of society place human rights and social justice before their individual interests. Labour's appeal is not to the lower but to the highest instincts of the human race. The, the last part of that, this, that isn't a bu uh, bull bureaucrat speaking, is it? That's an actual politician with a program, um, a clear understanding of what they're going to do, and a means of articulating it, which is the, uh, which is the important point. Uh, what did you think of that, Callum? Yeah, I, I think he, he speaks clearly, but he gets to the point and, you know, he does... I think what really inspired me from what he was saying was how he painted the sort of the men and women of the of the Labour Party, you know, in their ranks, comparing them to the um, single class Tories or those two classes of Tories. Whereas, you know, amongst amongst our ranks, there's many people of all different backgrounds, of all different experiences. I think he says from the school of life they are educated, and I think that that's quite a good analogy. I do like that. What did you think, Bradley? Yeah, it was. Um, I th I think also the, the the comparisons with Attlee and Starmer, they they sort of missed well seventy years really, didn't they? It it was a different time. It was a different set of politics. It was, society was different. The way the way you spoke in society and and, and in politics was very different to today. Um. So I I think to say, oh well, you know. Atley was a bit boring, he, even if it's not necessarily true, as, as that clip showed. I mean, he, you know, it, it's just a different time. It's a different era. It's a bit bizarre, actually, to say, oh, well, he speaks like someone 70, 75 years ago, so, so that's okay. I mean, that's my, probably my, point, my point, though, is that he doesn't. Um, you know, Atley is a far better orator from what I've seen. Uh, obviously, we don't have... Uh, Clement Attlee in the House of Commons because they didn't record the House of Commons in those days um, but you know he's he was clearly capable of being uh, inspiring and also appealing to high ideals which is very much against the philosophy of uh, people like Tony Blair as well to be fair um, and the reason I played those four clips is because you have four very different approaches uh, to holding the government to account. Uh, you've got Attlee, who obviously was in government um, and appealed to those high ideals, um, as well as criticising uh, the, the, the national government at the time. Then you've got Tony Blair, who is all about style and performance and um, you know, basically ridiculing the other side ahead of anything else. I mean, in that particular debate that I played, he was actually arguing effectively that, that Britain should join the single currency, which we now know in retrospect would have been a colossal mistake, right? Um, 
but nevertheless, he's putting it across. And, and actually, so, um, we've got a bit of John Major as well. Um, he mentions the Honourable Member for Bolsover. Obviously, Dennis Skinner definitely didn't support that policy as well. But he just bashes, uh, brushes that aside completely um, to make his point. And then you've got Jeremy Corbyn, who wants to change up the process entirely um, by asking questions directly from the public. And look, I'm not trying to rip directly into Keir Starmer. You know, a lot of people say, oh, well, you know, you're being so negative about him. Um, you know, is this going to help win a general election? But if he can't get this right, it what does it say about the rest of his leadership? Um PMQs is like the tip of the iceberg. It's the stage. It's where you present yourself. It's where you create sound bites for the evening news. Um, and in, I think he needs to find a style which uh, appeals to the same high, high ideals as Attlee. I think he needs to find a way that uh, is... No. Mm-hmm. He was making a good point there. He was about to make his killer point that he's been building up to for half an hour. Yeah, and I think you, I think I was going to agree with it, but I didn't hear the end. Nah. What did you think of it, Bradley? Do you think that Starmer is 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 adequate, inadequate? Should he sort of become an amalgamation? Or it, it is difficult as well, though, isn't it? He, he's in the middle of an he's been thrust into the leadership in the middle of an unprecedented situation. Yeah, I, I think to be honest, he just doesn't quite know what what tack to take on it. I, I think yeah. he's worried about alienating people, and he, he's just not quite sure what tone to strike. And in fairness, I can understand why. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. It is a, it's one of those. It's a sensitive subject. I think I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and wait until we get more into bread and butter issues. Yeah, like if he was doing this over like austerity or whatever, then then yeah, yeah. Like I'd be taking him to task for it. But at the moment, I, I would like to see a firmer line from him and a more opposition. But I, I can also understand why he's struggling to, to set the right tone. Yeah, it, it's an incredibly difficult situation. Especially as he um, should be coming in back in in five, yeah. four, three. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm already back. Okay. Sorry about that. I, I so what, what what does Starmer need to do? I finished my point. Um, I, even though I knew I was going off because obviously I know it's still recording. But just to summarise it, um, he needs to uh, he needs to have uh, he needs to stick it to the government, basically the same way that Tony Blair did. Um, appeal to high ideals like uh, Attlee did, and he needs to also bring it back to the people like Corbyn did, and I don't know if he's going to succeed in doing that, but effectively that is uh, a microcosm of the way his leadership needs to be. It needs to appeal to high ideals. It needs to be performative and interesting, and it needs to inspire people, and also it needs to be democratic and connected to um, not just the membership of the Labour Party, but also the wider public. Yeah, can't really disagree with that. That's a good point to make. Really, we were saying we were saying that we think we should give him the benefit of the doubt in the in the light of this crisis. But when it comes to the bread and butter issues, you know the you know austerity 
proper funding of public services, namely the NHS in light of the whole crisis. Um, if he's not holding them to ta- taking them to task on that and holding them to account, then you know I think he he would be considered a poor orator when it comes to PMQs and probably as leader of the opposition. I think that's the important thing is that he is obviously the, the, the circumstances we find ourselves in don't lend themselves to having a go at the government, but he should still be doing that in, in other issues subsequent to this. If this sets a trend for his approach to PMQs, I'd be worried. But he is of course only two PMQs in. I mean, he's, well, he's, yes. he's going to have, he's going to have more opportunities and, uh, Corbyn, I mean, actually, I thought that the maybe the clip that I chose earlier was too good. Actually, um, uh, certainly he was better than I remembered him being, because um, he did get he did get criticised, of course, for being oh yes, thank you, Prime Minister. Um, but uh, yeah, I, Corbyn grew into it by the by the time he left being the leader of the opposition, he was quite a formidable debater, I think. Uh, by the end, and I think that I think Keir Starmer will quickly improve. Um, you couldn't see it in the recording of Corbyn, but of course he was still wearing his um, his brown suit um, at that point. Um, Keir Starmer was already in a blue one, but uh, you know, uh, I th- I, yeah, I think he'll get better. Yeah, I think he'll get better. Um, so we'll return to our uh, our news story this week. Uh, well, the big story today, obviously, is uh, that Jenny Formby has gone. Um, what do you think uh, about about? Do you think it's because uh, at the end of the day, this isn't someone who should have real decision making powers. At the end of the day, the general secretary is an ex officio member of the national executive committee, so they can speak, but they can't vote. Um, they're appointed by the nas- the rest of the National Executive Committee, usually on the advice of the leader. Um, and so, and, and they're really basically there to run the staff and the states of the Labour Party. Um, so does it matter that uh, Jenny Formby uh, is going and Keir Starmer's appointing a replacement? Callum. Uh, I think it, it it's important, um, as we found out. The it shouldn't be like this, but the current situation in the Labour Party is that the staff in the party have power; they have influence. Whether it's right or wrong, they currently have power and influence. And you know that's the same with any big body that has a bureaucracy. Bureaucrats have power, so it, I think it's important that we get the right bureaucrat, as it were, in the position specifically at the head of the pyramid, because she will be working closely with the NEC, with the chair of the party, and with the leadership, which is extremely, you know, it's a crucial role in the party. And I think Jenny Formley, just to speak about her, I think considering the situation she found herself in when she took up the role, where the party was in a mess, we had, you know, we, we had to fight a general election. We were left high and dry there was accusations of all sorts of things being thrown at the leadership we were in complete disarray and in freefall but what she has done is at least attempted to steady the ship and i think that by uh, by doing that she certainly hopefully set a precedent that 
we can go forward as a party, get rid of the bad elements, the toxic elements at the top, and hopefully we can reorganise and have a party bureaucracy that serves the interests of the membership and ultimately wider society, as the Labour Party should do. I'm wondering your take on that, Brad. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think she did a really good job, despite, you know, quite extreme personal circumstances that she had to deal with. And, and you know, and had to face attacks during, during that as well, um, for who should have been colleagues. Um, so, yeah, sad, sad to see her go, um, although I suppose it, it was probably on the cards as soon as the leadership election was over, really. Uh, it will be a very interesting question to see who, who follows her now and, and what direction that, that takes for the party, although I, I fear it won't be good for the left. It's uh, the... Um, I've always thought it was quite cruel, actually, because... Uh, when the leaked report was leaked, um, a lot of some people on the right tried to sort of uh, pin uh, the blame for it all and say that the villain was Jenny Formby because obviously the report was written in her era and it was leaked under her. But really, I mean, she's the hero because under her predecessor, the anti-Semitism cases had all built up are um, allegedly deliberately, and she's the one that actually dealt with them, right? You know, so it's and and sort of exploded that myth, at least in the eyes of history, um, that you know the left in Labour was leading some sort of anti-Semitic crusade. Absolutely, that wasn't the case. If anything, it was the right that was enabling, um, or, or not the right as such, but rather these very partisan. Um, senior party staffers who were enabling uh, anti-Semitism, allegedly. Um, we'll have to see what the what the, what the report uh, comes out as. Um, I missed part of what you were saying, Callum, because I did drop out again. Um, but you mentioned before we came on um, possible ways to hold the General Secretary to account. Yes. Um, so uh, just, uh, just for anyone listening, for clarity the applicants for the role go to the NEC and then the NEC has the final say effectively. Obviously, as you said, with consultation with the party leadership. But I think personally, I'm uncomfortable with that being just the NEC. As I said um, before, it's such an important role within the party. Yes, our bureaucracy should just do the bidding of the leadership and of the membership, but it's not that way. So why not elect a person who is then accountable to the membership and then they can be removed or replaced if they're not doing a good enough job. I know there's a number of issues around that and I know that it would effectively make an element of party bureaucracy accountable to the membership and therefore elected, which has its own uh, own queries. But if it's already political, if it's already a political role, why not elect it? And that's what I think on the matter. I think that if it is... If it's already being polluted by this, by a, a political discourse, if people were holding opinions to the point that they're at the top of the party, if they're influencing, not necessarily the general secretary, but other staffers, as you've mentioned, uh, influencing our election performances and stopping us dealing with serious allegations of anti-Semitism within members of the party, then we should 
hold them to account properly, whether that be through elections or whether that be through some sort of accountability process that can be triggered by the membership. So there's a couple of uh, points there. Um, what one question I would ask first and foremost is if you if you look at Tom Watson for example, um, we now know in retrospect when he was first elected. Um, I've actually got one of his leaflets from his uh, deputy uh, leader election campaign, um, which in which he talks about himself as being this unifier who can talk to all parties and so on. Um, and then he disappointed me about a year into his tenure by basically proving that was bollocks, um, and, and acting in a very in a, in a very very partisan way. Um, and not then not really doing very much at all once the uh, chicken coup against Jeremy Corbyn had failed. I mean, it was it was interesting because you know on his leaflet he talks about having a sort of digital revolution, and um, if he had followed through on those claims, we'd all be using iPads for canvassing and things like that now, which would have been great. But he never did anything like that. He was absolutely useless. But anyway, sorry, just that's digressing slightly. Part of the reason he was able to get away with that. Um, is because he had his own independent mandate. Um, he was elected by the whole body of the uh, membership, just like Jeremy Corbyn was. Now, um, there are other people who, on the NEC, obviously, National Executive um, Body, which is the sovereign body of the Labour Party outside of conference uh, time, um, who have a big mandate. Obviously, people who are elected to represent from CLPs, but of course they're elected by first past the post, so their mandate is weakened. Uh, there are delegates from trade unions who are indirect. There are delegates from um, socialist societies, again, elected by those so socialist societies, so they're indirect. Then there's the, the leaders of the Welsh and Scottish parties, but they're only elected by members in Scotland and Wales, respectively. They don't have the mandate from the whole of the membership. Um, and so that was a huge problem for Jeremy Corbyn, having someone who had their own independent mandate who was effectively, uh, allegedly, working against them. Um, you could even find real-world examples, if you like, in the United States, where originally uh, the vice president was elected on their own mandate, and that certainly didn't work out very well, if you know your American history. Um, so wouldn't the same situation be replicated if you had a general secretary who had their own mandate? And, you know, what would be the purpose of that? I think um, sort of I think that the role of the general secretary is is so crucial in our party bureaucracy and in terms of the day to day running of central party. that I think it, it has to be an elected role because currently the appointments process leaves it open to questionable individuals or individuals out of touch with the membership being appointed in the role. Now, I think it's a case of getting the right person in that role, but also getting the person that represents the membership's views on, an, on a range of issues, on things like how the party should be run, how we go forward in terms of structuring our, our campaigns and how we work with the trade union movements. And I think the General Secretary has, has a big role to play in that. As it currently stands, I feel that by not having that their own mandate and being simply appointed, they might struggle to get that through. As we found that also by not being elected, Jenny Formby was effectively a uh, 
you know, she was being used as a scapegoat because she could easily, because she was in an appointed role, people could just throw stuff at her and accuse her of this and of hiding up anti-Semitism and not doing her job properly. So I think that actually by having her elected, she's, or, or the role, specifically the role, we're talking about the role itself, having that elected makes them more accountable. And if, as it's such a political role, they will be subject to scrutiny, whether that be from internal Labour Party members or whether that be externally from the media and other other people. So I think that it's important that they that she well the role is is elected. Whoever's obviously I don't they we we won't do it for the the um, the next general secretary. But I think that should be something we should look at because if we if we're going to put people with this much power and this much p- political influence at the top they need to be democratically accountable because that's that's what we're about as a party is that have we is there a danger we've got this backwards though and that the issue isn't that the role is political inherently political therefore um, it should be elected is the issue not that the role shouldn't be political i i i would disagree in that because it's a political party and because the role itself is is involved in in political organ politically organizing members or people in the NEC or people within the uh, within Labour Party central office, then actually it is inherently political. And I think the danger would be by taking away that political element, you then take away what it means to be a Labour Party general secretary. You take away that that sort of drive to represent us. And it, you could end up with just a plain person in a suit that's making decisions almost with a corporate eye instead of a, the eye of, of somebody that's a Labour Party member, trade unionist, campaigner. You know, I think that's that's the benefit of the role being at least partially political. But practically, what, what sort of decisions is a general secretary making? What, what are the main functions of a general secretary of the Labour Party? Well, there is, I know that they're very much involved in the um, in the organisation of the party. Now, that that itself is is important, as we found out in recent elections, that how our party approaches elections is, is crucial, where money gets allocated in campaigning. It's not just a if you took it on, a, on for example, as I, as I mentioned about somebody taking business decisions in at the top of the political party. If you're doing it like that, money would never be allocated to seats that are marginally winnable. Instead, we'll be used it. We'll be using it to target seats that are very close to winning, maybe previous Labour seats and seats that are safe to make sure that we keep those seats. We won't have any ambition. Is my concern. We won't have any ambition going forward in terms of how we look at our party structure. We look at how we run elections, how we run our day-to-day processes, and also I think. Um, the, the approach that she took in terms of getting this report, uh, you know, put together, obviously she didn't publish it. Somebody has leaked it and obviously there'll be an investigation subsequent. But I think that things like that might not necessarily happen if it's somebody that's just a person in a suit making decisions to protect the reputation, finances or electability of the party. I think I think I differ with you on this one. I think I mean the organisations I know the most about are students' unions, um, and I think I suppose the general secretary's role is in in a students' union um, is most equivalent to, to what most unions have as as a CEO. Um, I, I think there's all sorts of questions about how, how exactly you structure the staffing in a union and and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but 
I think it's incredibly important that we have, um, in in the same way of the civil service, that that people that aren't beholden to to, to political interests actually, um, not not to sound too like a, a public choice theorist and a neoliberal, but I think that there is some element that it's true that you do need a, a detached and independent um, body of experts that 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 administrate and 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 facilitate various things in the party. Um, in the same way that the civil service exists and it is 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 not elected, um, and in the same way that un- trade unions and students unions will, will, will have unelected um, staff members with with quite some level of authority, I think the general secretary in most most unions outside of the SU, obviously that's far more corporate. Outside of SUs, is there is a general secretary that's elected? Yeah, but I I, I don't I don't know if they should be, and I. I, I I don't know whether it's more the minutiae of what exactly the roles and responsibilities of each of the of each of these people are. Um, I think there's probably a question of whether some of the things the general secretary in the Labour Party does should be done by a staff member. Maybe maybe there are questions there. Uh, I, I would think, again, from my experience of students' unions, that the the point is that if there are broad decisions to be made about the direction of the organisation, they should be made by by the members or at, at the very least by elected representatives. The role of any staff member should be to facilitate those things. Now that will mean making some decisions um, along the way. You know, st- Staff members will have to interpret policy and will have to interpret the views of members along the way. Um, but, but the overall direction should be being set. I suppose, I suppose in a sense you're mandating staff members to, to, to complete certain tasks, aren't you? So I think maybe there's elements of, of the general secretary's remit that should be um, given to maybe the NEC, maybe to, to subcommittees of the membership, maybe to conference um, or other elected representatives. Um, but but most of the day-to-day workings of what a general secretary does, I think, should still be in the hands of, of, a, of a staff member rather than an elected representative. That's an interesting point you make, um... Bradley about disseminating power and responsibility, which is definitely something you want to see. Um, I, I mean, you, you're right in a way, Callum, that we do have elected uh, general secretary. Obviously, we have elected general secretaries in trade unions, um, but they are effectively they're effectively the leader. That that would be my argument. And so it's the uh, and then there are staff members working under them who are appointed by the executive committee of each trade respective trade union um i mean there's a possibility uh we were discussing before we came we started recording um about having internal elections as in staff electing other staff if you see what i mean and going up that way um because there's an argument to say that you know if we want to encourage workplace democracy then we should practice what we preach i i'm all up for that um to 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 some extent um how it would work um i'm not sure because obviously as as um as bradley said really what we you do need is a is an impartial bureaucracy which is carrying out the wishes of members uh, to some extent, and that actually chimes quite well with what Jan- John Landsman, uh, the moment- the founder of Momentum, and also NEC member, um, has been calling for, 
which was a, which is a more impartial bureaucracy, which literally just carries out the functions and is the guardian of the party's rule book um, and just processes elections and things like that. Um, so, I mean, really, the question is, you know, where would you draw the line? Um, if you elect the general secretary, should we be um, electing all of the um, people who are responsible to them? Um, you know how 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 would that work? Should we consider internal democracy as well in our staffing arrangements? Well, I'm I'm a big fan of of workplace democracy. I think it has a certainly has a place in exploring it within our party structures, almost as a pilot for it would be fantastic. Um, in terms of how it would work within the Labour Party, in terms of We've had the debate already as to how political some staff within the Labour Party are in terms of effectively, well, at least allegedly sabotaging elections uh, for us. So the real question is, is do we want those same people effectively placed in another position of power where they're electing the general secretary? Or would you rather have it as it is? Or would you alternatively have a, a wider election that encompasses members i think yeah i think we'll wrap it up because my internet keeps keeps dropping out that was a really interesting discussion um the bits of it that i was able to hear uh, anyway um thank you we'll we'll be back next week uh, assuming my uh, internet is uh, is working by then uh, the world is still here um, and we are all still here. Um, I think we're we were supposed to have Mary McKay today, but she wasn't available. Um, I think we're going to try and get her next week. Um, but uh, until then, it's uh, goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from Callum. Goodbye, everyone. Stay safe as always. And Bradley. Yeah. Goodbye, folks. We'll see you next week. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time.